Does anybody have any questions or comments you'd like to make about what we've covered up to this point? Anything at all? Any verse that, uh, that you'd like to have more attention paid to? Or any comment over anything we've covered thus far? Okay, let's uh, fix our mind as we get ready for the 14th chapter. And I have something here in a history book I'd like to read you also. Remember that uh, as we look at the book, before you even go to history or anything of that nature to study uh, some things that's essential in understanding the exact interpretation of some of this, there's some things that are obvious to us that I mean just there, it's in black and white, it's plain, and we can see it, even though we have to look further to maybe see the exactness of, of some certain names and things like that. As we go through the New Testament, we know that the church has been persecuted all through the book of Acts. I mean, that's a fact that we deal with. We know that the persecuting force was the Jews, or were the Jews. They were the persecuting force against the church. We know that. We know that the Lord promised that he would come in judgment against the Jewish nation. And that the city would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, that not even a stone would be left standing, he said. And we know that he made the statement that, that all of the righteous blood that had been shed from Abel to Zechariah, the first and the last recorded murders in the Old Testament, would be required for this generation. Not only had they killed all of those people, but they had killed prophets, they killed others that had been sent to them. They were going to kill the apostles, and of course they were going to kill the Lord himself. And so we know all of that. Then when we get into the letters that's written to the individual churches, there's some things we can see there also. And we know that over and over we read letters written to Christians who are being persecuted, and at the same time the letter is admonishing them and encouraging them to hang in there, there is the promise that God is going to deal with their persecutors. And that the dealing with it is going to come about in their lifetime. And as we get to those specific letters that are written in the 60s A.D., the dealing with the persecuting force becomes something that's imminent. For example, Peter is written in the 60s. And by the way, I don't know any biblical scholar of a conservative nature who believes in the inspiration of the Bible and all, who would date Peter anywhere except in the 60s. And we know that Peter spoke of a judgment to come that was imminent, and he spoke of it as a judgment, this is 1 Peter 4 and 7, and also 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, as a judgment that was to begin at the house of God. And he said it was now time for that judgment. And we notice that at the very time that Peter makes that statement, that the house of God is in a very unique situation. There are the Jews that have been the people of God throughout their covenant relationship with Moses. And then out of Judaism, there is Christianity that has emerged. The people that are following Jesus and announced himself as being the Messiah. But we know that the vast majority of the Jews rejected Jesus. And so there's this battle within the house of God. There are those that believe in the deity of Jesus, that he is the Messiah. There are those who reject him and do everything they can to stamp out the church. The Jews recognize this big battle that's going on. In fact, their own top scholars have made the 
statements that they read that that uh, while the Christians are being persecuted, uh, just leave the thing alone. That if it's of God, they would be fighting against God. And on the other hand, if it's not of God, it would die out. And so they recognize this big battle going with the, on within the house itself. So each of the writers, John and 1 John 2.18, said it was now the last hour that the Antichrist were there, there in motion, uh, doing their job even at that particular time. So we leave that and we come to Revelation. And before we get into any interpretation or anything of that nature, we have it identified to ourselves right at the first that this judgment that he's talking about deals with something that is imminent. It's going to speedily take place. It's something that was at hand. And we have this announced to us in the first chapter, the third chapter, and the 22nd chapter. And also when we read, we find it addressed to seven specific churches that are located in Asia. Asia Minor, to be exact. And these churches, all located close together, are written to by an apostle who is himself being persecuted and has been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And he's writing to these Christians who are being persecuted and is telling them, be thou faithful unto death. And you'll receive the crown of life. To him that overcome, that man has the, the victory in the long run. And so he says this over and over. So we, we catch a persecuted man writing to a persecuted people, telling them to hang in there, telling them there is a judgment that is imminently on the scene to deliver them. Now these are, this is material that's just simply there before you get into, into the symbols or anything like that. Then we know something else. As we read through this book, we know that as we get to the very middle of it, the 11th chapter, that in speaking of the judgment that is on the persecuting force, he identifies the holy city as the place that's going to be trampled underfoot. He identifies the fact that it'll have to take place over a period of 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. It's like he wants to emphasize that same period of time. And the city that is being destroyed, the city that's being judged, according to the writer, no interpretation involved here, is the city that although it's spiritually or figuratively being called something else in Revelation, it's the city where our Lord was crucified. In Revelation 11 and verse 8. And so he says, spiritually it's being called Sodom. Spiritually it's being called Egypt. But it's the city where our Lord was crucified. Now all of that is there. Everything we can see about Revelation perfectly fits the events that take place in the latter part of the 60s and up to and including the war between Israel and Rome culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation, the downfall of the temple. It perfectly fits it. The only thing, the only thing that ever caused people to interpret it in any other way was a piece of information from secular writing in the second century that was interpreted as an individual saying that John, according to his interpretation, had seen something that he interpreted to be the revelation at a time that he 
in the second century that was interpretive in nature and even had some points that could be interpreted one way or the other. The date, 96, was stamped on revelation in the minds of multitudes who never knew how they arrived at that date. They just knew it was there. So obviously, although it so obviously fit the downfall of that nation and fulfillment of what Jesus said, it was skipped over even by outstanding scholars simply because in their mind they started with 96 AD. And since they started with 96 AD, then you obviously were allowed anything before then. So then what happened is, it was interpreted in a multiplicity of different ways. It's been rubbed down through the centuries. You name any big bad event happening through the years or any bad guy or any persecution of Christians and, and somehow another revelation has been used. Listen today uh, to the preachers of doom and the preachers of judgment today. And they regularly use wretched revelation. And they'll use it to talk about Russia. They'll use it to talk about what's going on in the Middle East. They'll use it to talk about what's going on in this country. They'll use it to talk about the imminent return of the Lord. Well, they did it in the last generation. They did it in the last generation. And they did it in the last generation. And they did it in the generation before that. And the each time they applied it to the negative and bad things going on in their generation. Now, the other way that the book was interpreted as a result, there were those who even though they looked at the date 96, saw that it dealt with something that was imminent and something in their century and something of their time. And so these people interpreted it in light of Rome being the persecutor of Israel because in 96, the man that was on the throne in Rome is Domitian. And Domitian did engage in persecution of Christians. Domitian did set himself up to be worshipped. And so therefore they interpreted it, and so in their interpretation, which is far, far, far closer to what John is saying than anything that comes down through the centuries, then Domitian became the beast that was persecuting Christians of that particular time. But we noted also all of the centuries, there never was a time when there were not scholars standing up and saying, no, the dating is wrong, it happened before 70 AD. And remember one thing to fix in your mind, I wish everybody would fix this or write in your Bible or something, that the earliest complete version of the New Testament that we have is the Syriac version, written in Aramaic, at about 150 AD. And this version puts Revelation before 70, in its notes, before 70 AD, and Nero the beast there, and identifies it not as a theory or anything, but as simply a matter of fact. And then we know it's something else, that as we look at the situations presently, we now, as a result of study and study that's been given to the subject, are in a situation where although the majority of religious groups and the majority of, of theological doctrines, especially in the Protestant world, bring this book down through the centuries, it's interesting to note that the majority of scholars put it before 70 AD and apply it to the construction
destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation, and all of it having applied in that generation. And so we have this great difference now between theological interpreters in various churches who have particular doctrines that they have brought, been brought up on and taught, and actual scholarship. There is a difference there. And remember in our handout, uh, I gave you the handout on the little article in Time Magazine that zeroed in on this difference and pointed out that scholarship differed with the theological interpretation uh, on that particular point. Now, as we go through here, and we look at this figure language, we've noticed something so far. Number one, there's a lot of figure language in Revelation. And it's a mistake to take language that John tells you in advance is figurative, and is obviously figurative, and apply it in any literal scene. In other words, when John talks about a dragon, when John talks about a beast, when John talks about a, a whore, a great whore, when John talks about Babylon, when John talks about Egypt, when he talks about Sodom, he talks about things that he has seen in this vision, but that's not literally what he's talking about. That's what he has seen. Then there is the interpretation of those figures. And we know that this figurative language is a type of language that was used at that time. And last week we introduced material to show that this type of literature that Revelation is written in, this apocalyptic type of writing using all of these symbols, had its heyday from about 100 A.D. or 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., about 200 years. And so at the time John writes, we've already had a couple of generations of this type of writing. And so figures that he uses that are foreign to our thinking, the only way they ring a bell with us is we go back and do a little reading. But they were common among them and in use at that time. And also, in addition to that, we noted that all these people, all especially the Jewish Christians, were very, very, very cognizant of the Old Testament scriptures, very learned, and that many, many of these symbols were used in a regular and consistent way throughout the Old Testament, and they fully understood it, and it had been part of their use, part of their preaching for years. So again, what is difficult for us was not necessarily difficult for them. Then we know in last week also that there is a reason for writing this way. These people are being tremendously persecuted. And if you're saying some bad things about the man on the throne, then you don't necessarily want him to know what exactly you're saying about him. And again, we go back to the Old Testament and show times where prophets were mistreated severely because of prophecies that were not what the top guy wanted to hear. And so there was a reason for writing. And the reason is when you are a persecuted people, writing to other persecuted people concerning your persecutors. You're in the minority. And so we have all of this language couched in things that are bigoted. And then another point to keep in mind, when the early church received this letter, during the times of the apostles, they had men in their congregation that had these various miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, like the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment, the gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy. And so when John wrote these letters and they, sent, they were sent, then there were those individuals who 
had those various gifts uh, as the letters were being read in the congregation itself. So they had several things going for them. They lived at that time. They had the people with the miraculous gifts. They were familiar with this kind of literature. And so when they sat down and read this initially, it was not nearly as difficult to understand as it is for us 2,000 years later trying to take this information from, an, here we are in another language, another culture, uh, familiar with another kind of literature, uh, other kinds of idioms, other kinds of different language, and for us to try and understand that involves a lot of study on our part. And then there are some points that even after we study real hard, there's going to be some different language where we wind up saying, well, this could be such and such, but I'm obviously not for sure. And we get into some language, right on through the rest of this that I know at least with me there I can see the figures that are used I can see the overall context of a battle taking place and a judgment being passed but it would just simply be a matter of interpretation on my part as to the exactness of some of these precise figures and I may be right or may be wrong and so there's area there for more study on this for all of us in years to come okay let's get into that 14th chapter now one thing I'd like to read before that, though, I almost forgot this. Remember I said for those that uh, had interpreted this, uh, having been written in 96 AD as applying to Domitian in the time of Rome and the persecutors of the church then, in fact, uh, I would guess uh, among churches of Christ now, this is probably the, 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 the two most common ways would be this or this applying to Domitian. I don't think you'll find too many people, uh, too many preachers within the church that bring Revelation down to the set priest or anything like that. That's primarily those that believe the doctrine of premillennialism. But you really won't find too many in the church, I think, that bring it on down. They will apply to Rome and Domitian or to Nero and the downfall of Judaism or a combination of both. That's, that's the way it will be typically applied by those that are studying it and presenting the information right now. Now, Here's the problem from just a historical standpoint, separate apart from all the arguments of the date and everything like that. But here was a problem that those that interpreted it in light of Rome and Domitian, that they recognized themselves. And, and it was a problem to them. Revelation is speaking of a judgment that's going to come. And it's going to come imminently on those persecutors. And they're going to know when it comes. And the people that are being persecuted is going to know what it comes. And it's going to mean relief for the persecuted and judgment on the persecutors. And it's an imminent thing that will come about at a point in time. All right, now here's the problem in applying this to Rome. Rome didn't fall in a day. I'm reading now from a book called The Story of Mankind by Henry <coughs> Willem Van Loon. And this is on uh, this is uh, history coming down through the centuries, and this chapter is on the twilight of Rome, the fall of Rome. It says the textbooks of ancient history give the date 476 as the year in which Rome fell, because in that year the last emperor was driven off his throne. But Rome, which was not built in a day, took a long time falling. The process was so slow and so gradual that most Romans did not realize how their old world was coming to an end. They complained about the unrest of the times. They grumbled about the high 
price of food, the low wages of the workmen. They cursed the profiteers who had a monopoly of the grain, the wool, and the gold coin. Occasionally they rebelled against an unusually rapacious governor. But the majority of the people, during the first four centuries of our area, ate and drank whatever the purse allowed them to buy, hated or loved, and went to the theater or starved in the slums and really had no realization that their empire was crumbling around them. So what he says is that when Rome failed, there never was this big judgment situation, but over a period of centuries, it gradually deteriorated to the point that we have our last emperor in 476. But that's not exactly, they just gradually failed and deteriorated and collapsed so gradually, he said, that most of the Romans never even realized what was happening. Another point. When it finally reaches the point where it gradually decays and then falls in 476, at that point in time, Rome is not and has not been for some time a persecutor of Christians. Because in the fourth century, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So at the time that Rome finally failed, Christianity had already been recognized as the official religion within the Roman Empire. Idolatry has, for all practical purposes, been wiped out. There is no official persecution of Christians. And so what I'm saying is that not only the evidence for the date of Revelation, there is no time in history up to this point that this book fits, except the period between 60 and 70 AD and the downfall of the Jewish nation and then Christianity coming to course. There's just nothing there that will fit the period itself. Okay, let's go to the 14th chapter. He said, I, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing, rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing with their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. And they followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God in the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel, gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, and receives his mark on his forehead, or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. See, on the white cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle to the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came out from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from its earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. Rising as high, our blood flowed with the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle, a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, now, <coughs> look at what, let's see, I don't know if we ought to continue. Yeah, let's come on down to the, through the, uh, in the 15th chapter, notice he starts over again with the angels singing. And you have, look at verse 2 and 3, they have harps given them by God. They sang the song of Moses. Again, the song of praising. Uh, then the statement, all nations will come and worship before you and your righteous acts and all. Then we come on down to the 16th chapter, the seven bowls of God's wrath and his wrath is poured out. And let's come on down and end it for tonight in verse 6. Notice these people that are being judged. For they, verse 6, have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Okay, now, go back and look at the first part. And we might have to work at the interpretation, the exact interpretation of some of the figurative language, but again, the tenor of it we can get. There are some people of God who are being delivered, right? And he makes statements like, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Those people whose deeds, righteous deeds, will follow after them. So you have the Lamb of God, you have the blessed in the Lord, the knowledge that they're going to come out victorious. That, that comes out. And then there's a song of praise to God. We also have a judgment. And the people that are being judged, he identifies over here, they are people in verse 6, chapter 16. They are people who have shed the blood of your saints and your prophets and have given them blood to drink. You've given them blood to drink as, as they deserve. And your judgments are true. So the people that are being judged are those that have persecuted God's people. All right, then, from within this statement of persecution, deliverance, judgment, we also see something back over here in the 14th chapter, verse 6.
It's judgment is going to come. But then what does he make them clear that's going to happen after this judgment? The eternal gospel is going to be proclaimed to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, people. Now think, first of all, if you're thinking in terms of the end of the world, when it comes, when the world ends, and you have the judgment of it, is it going to do any good to them start preaching the eternal gospel? Well, see, those who believe the doctrine of premillennialism, that's exactly what they have. They have the Lord coming back, and he's going to have this thousand-year reign on this earth, and the gospel is going to be preached during that period of time. And so that's how they come up with this period of time. The Lord's coming back. They've got a literal thousand years. He's going to reign, and that eternal gospel is going to be proclaimed in some way. But we can see here in this judgment situation that this gospel was going to be proclaimed to every nation, tribe, and language. There were those who were being persecuted and going to be delivered. And then the people being judged are those that had been persecutors of the people of God. Now, when he says that, uh, let's see, uh, the first verse standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000 had his name. He's got 144,000 saved people out of this situation, right? What would you, can you think of anything that would help him come up with 144,000? Wouldn't it be interesting if there's literally 144,000 people going to be saved? By the way, there's a group that takes that literal. And that's this. There is a group that says that heaven will consist of exactly 144,000 people. And then the others that make it will live here on this earth. But let's look at this. What about that 144,000 people? Verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. I think one translation says virgin men, right? And so, right? In King James, okay, they kept themselves pure, they were not defiled. They were purchased from among men, offered as fruits to God in the land. No lie was found in their mouths. Okay, now, here we have them, the 144,000 redeemed from the earth. They were those that kept themselves pure and not defiled. So if you're going to take the 144,000 literal, what else are you going to have to take literal? Any married guys going to be saved? No married guys going to be saved. The only, the only guy that's going to be 144,000, but we're going to stay there now, there's going to be 144,000 men that have never had a relationship with a woman. What is he saying there? I do know one thing, that, that there were... Twelve tribes of Israel, weren't there? And I know that you can come up with twelve times twelve and, and get 144. And I can see how they can use it in, in, that, in that sense. And I know that through here you have twelve and twenty-four, like there was twenty-four elders. And you, of course you have twelve apostles, twelve tribes of Israel. I know that the word thousand was used for them to be an all-encompassing perfect number. For example, in the Old Testament, we read that God was the God of a thousand hills. God said that I'm making my covenant with you to the Jew for a thousand generations. They never understood that as a literal thousand generations. And they never understood it as a literal thousand hills. It was all, he's the God of all hills, isn't it? And his covenant was forever. So 
This, verse 6, this eternal gospel that's going to be proclaimed to those living on the earth. And those that were not defiled were those that were in their spiritual purity. They had held on to God's gospel, had not corrected it. They had not worshipped the emperor. They only worshipped the Lord, and they were ready to proclaim it. And so he's simply talking about uh, the, those who would be saved, representing all of them, and then those who had not defiled or committed adultery with all the falsehoods and all of that day, but were spiritually pure. And they were the ones that were coming out. And these people would proclaim that eternal gospel to all those who live on the earth, every nation, every tribe, and every language. And then that our judgment, right before that, is going to take place. And he says, fallen, fallen is battle on the grave. Verse 8, look at that now. Well, we've already said that when he spoke of Egypt and Sodom, he said, I'm talking about the city where the Lord was crucified, right? Now, as you read that, fallen, fallen is Babylon the grave. What would let you know right away that he's not talking about Babylon as something's going to fall? Literal Babylon? Okay, Babylon's already fallen, hasn't it? And in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that when Babylon fell, it would never be rebuilt. It would never, only the desert animals would have it. And that's exactly the condition of Babylon at this day. So Babylon's already fallen. So like Egypt and Sodom, Babylon is being used in a figurative sense of this people. Just what God did to Egypt, just what God did to Sodom, just what God did to Babylon, he's going to do to these people. And so just like we call somebody a Judas, we call them a Jezebel, God called these spiritual people that had, had rejected him and had left his will. He referred to them as Sodom, he referred to them as Egypt, and he referred to them as Babylon throughout this book. And he even tells us in the 11th chapter that he uses that in a symbolic way. All right, now the honor of the judgment has come. Remember 1 John 2, verse 18, when John was writing there, it's the last hour. Now he says the hour of his judgment has come. And then, look at fallen, fallen, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, what do you have to be to somebody before you commit adultery? Have to be married to them. So this city that's being destroyed, before it could be an adulterer, it had to first be married. And so Israel was married to God. And Israel has committed adultery, spiritual adultery. And so Israel's going to fall, and they've made the nations drink the magic wine of her adulteries. Well, we know that Babylon doesn't commit the physical act of adultery. We've already said that Babylon's been destroyed. It's talking about spiritual adultery. Just like we mentioned earlier, the, the pure men, the men who were pure spiritually. Fallen, a second angel followed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which has made all the nations drink her magic of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said to loud voices, Anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury. And again, we notice a parallel to this over in Ezekiel. And again, in a spiritual sense, the same way, but suffice to say, there were those that from God's standpoint were marked because they worshipped the beast. There were those that were marked because they worshipped God. Now, look at the faithful being delivered. Verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who will obey God's commandments 
and remain faithful to Jesus. Again, over here, first we start out in the chapter with faith with men who are pure, and 144,000 simply delivered. Then we have adulterers being judged, and now we have the saved people are who? People who patiently endure, who obey God's commandments, remain faithful to Jesus. Now what I'm saying is this. The saved people are represented in two ways here. First, it's represented as pure men who have not committed adultery, who have been faithful, uh, and, and who have never had a relationship with a woman. In contrast to the adulterers who have been judged, but then that to show that we're talking about their spiritual purity, these same saved group of people are now referred to as patient saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And so when you identify the, the faithful saints who are patient, who obey God's commands, who remain faithful to the Lord, then that is the same group of people that is the 144,000, the same group of people that are the men that have never known women. Because in each category, or each time, you're talking about a saved in contrast to the destroyed. The destroyed are the spiritual adulterers, those that have committed adultery. Then I heard a loud voice, or a voice, I should say, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Because some of God's people are going to die. But so what? Happy are the dead. The big thing is to die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, said the Spirit, they will die will follow them. Now he speaks of the harvest to take place and he has reference to the sickle and the gathering and the wine press. Didn't Jesus speak in terms similar to this? Didn't Jesus have a winnowing fork where he winnowed the wheat and then the shaft was burnt? Didn't John the Baptist come preaching to the Jews and said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is now laid at the root of the trees. John wasn't talking about a literal axe. He wasn't talking about a literal tree. But God was ready to deal with the Jews. And then he said the Messiah is coming. His winnowing fork was in his hand. And then he had the Messiah use a winnowing fork, separating the wheat from the shaft and burning up the shaft. Now we've got a grape press. And we've got the God's wrath. And again, we're going to, what do you do when you have the, the great press? When you do have the press of the grapes, there's part you throw away and part you keep. And so God, God's wrath being displayed here. Now, look over here. We'll end on this. I know we've gone over. But verse 6 of the 16th chapter, where it says, These people that he's judging are those who have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. Okay, now hold your place right there. Flip back to 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. First Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. Starting right about the middle of the verse. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way they always keep up their 
your text here. What's he want to do? Look at verse 6 of chapter 14. He wants the eternal gospel proclaimed to those who live on the earth. But the Jews are a force against him. Judgment takes place. And he says, these people that are being judged are those who have shed the blood of your saints, the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink to save your servant. And then the end result is that God's eternal gospel is going to be proclaimed. And again, the same kind of thing that you have over here in Thessalonians, God, the Jews, persecuting God's people, killing the prophets, trying to keep them from preaching the gospel, but then God's wrath is going to come on them. All right, now hold your place here in one other passage. We've read this from before to the flip back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 29, starting with verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets, and decorate the graves of righteous. You say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogue and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berkai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And I tell you the truth. All this will come on this generation. Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See how perfect the defense is here that uh, the Lord identifies the Jews and all their persecution, their killing of righteous people. We see this happen in the book of Acts, we see it addressed in the letters, and now we see it culminating in the book of Revelation, and the judgment force on the persecuting people of God's people, and God's people being delivered, the ones that die, blessed are the dead, that die in the Lord. The ones that live, they're going to go out and preach the eternal gospel to every nation and people on the face of the earth. That's exactly what happened. And the persecuting force would have been dealt with, and God's judgment would have been shown righteous. Okay, let's end our 